0: All right. Hello, everybody. This is Tyler with the Grassroots Living Soil podcast. And I'm really excited because this is episode number 20. I say I'm really excited for every episode, but um, this one's this one's cool. Uh, we've got Saul from uh, Beneficial Insectary. Um, they've been around for a really, really long time, and they're based in Northern California. Um, he was just telling me some amazing information about why he works for this company and everything he was doing and his experience that he's had down in Salinas and working with very large facilities. So I had to stop him and be like, "Hey, man, let's let's hit record here. This is getting too too good." So uh, without further introduction, I would like to introduce Saul. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, man, and, and how you got started in this whole process.
1: Uh, so yeah, I've been doing sustainable crop protection for the last eight or so years. Um, most of it has been organic. Um, I've done work with uh, mushrooms and mushrooms for about a year, a couple of years in organic herbs, uh, greenhouse herbs, and uh, some field vegetables and field herbs, um, and then finally did two years um, running the IPM program at a, a four-acre operation and cannabis operation in Salinas. Um, most everything, you know, I started working with biological control basically from the start of the of my career in crop protection, and, uh, and the programs that I designed have progressively gotten more and more bio-friendly. Um, my job is Basically with I got hired by beneficial insectory about three years ago. Um it's yeah, it'll be three years next month. And so my job is really to guide growers, you know, give advice um successes and failures. So from both of those, I think a grower can speed up their learning curve when it comes to bio using biocontrol effectively and integrating it into um, a cannabis um, IPM program,
0: and when you say biosafe, I'm just in my mind. I'm guessing that means that it's safe for any sort of a bio, bio biological. Am I am I saying that correctly?
1: That's right. What can you integrate? Um, the term I've heard use is um, bio-intensive IPM, meaning you you're relying to uh, relying on um, organisms, and this and you're looking at. The farm as a biological system, where you're trying to, you know, see the the pests or diseases that are hurting your crop. You're trying to control them using biological approaches. So, um, the predatory insects, uh, predatory mites, um, fungi that help uh, protect against pathogens, both above, you know, in- parts of the plant and below ground, um, fungi that can help with um, insect pest control, all those, you know, basically using mother nature to, to you know, combat pests and disease.
0: That's awesome. And I look. I like to look at it as uh, we've been given everything we need here on this earth and we just have to be resourceful and, and uh, knowledgeable in how to correctly use those things and bring them together. So that's just another, right. uh, you're backing up more of my thoughts and my processes mm-hmm. that my brain's going through here. Um, so you've been with them for about three years. Um, first of all, I got to ask, what's your, besides cannabis, you know, I know that's the main reason kind of why we're here, but what's your favorite crop to grow or assist with growing or any part of that?
1: It's cannabis. Oh, okay. I, um, yeah i I purposely went um, into crop protection with the idea that I I'd, that eventually there would be legalization in California and that cannabis growers were going to need help with, you know, pest management. So that was the original intent. Um, and it worked out for me. I was able to um, get a job at Harborside Farms and really kind of work with the crop intensely and put some of the methodology that I had learned from my other greenhouse experiences into cannabis crop protection. And, um, and yeah, I've loved it since it's probably the crop I know most about as far as IPM goes, I couldn't tell you anything about, you know, nutrition, irrigation, lighting, all that. That's, that's not the I'm not a plant guy. I'm a, more of a bug guy. Great,
0: great. So whenever, any, uh, it's got to be probably fun when there's um, you gain friends on the farm and people are like, man, I found something really weird. You got to check out the back of this leaf and find mm-hmm. out what bug this is or tell me what it is. And mm-hmm. how often is it that you find something that you've never seen before? Or is it always like the same bad guys? Um, it's
1: mostly the same bad guys. We see, um, infrequently you'll find um, something that, uh, is in the, in the grow, but we know is not a pest of cannabis found for, or, or we know that, um, it's not a pest. Like for example, this morning, I think a box box elder bug is what it's called. A uh, grower from, oh geez, like, um, I want to hit, I want to say Texas anyway, he called and, and, uh, you know, was worried about box elder bug and it's not really, it's not a plant pest just cuz it's in the grow doesn't mean that it's past. Yeah, so, it could be um,
0: preying on something else or feeding on something or just hanging out in the cool weather or the shade or whatever yeah. it may be, I guess.
1: And even it might just it might even just lay its eggs on the plant just because it's it could host that, you know, yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of that happening where you get photos and growers are concerned. Um but uh, you know, oftentimes we say hey, don't worry, this isn't not known to be a pest or it's known specifically not to be a pest. It's commonly found in the grow and it doesn't do anything, but on a rare occasion, you do get, uh, you do get something popping up that can be problematic. Um, One example would be um, the beet leaf hopper. So that's, yeah, it's relatively, you know, we've known about it potentially being a problem in hemp and cannabis now for a couple of years um it base it it vectors a virus that affects a number of crops, specifically tomatoes. It can be really bad on tomatoes, but beets also sugar beets and cannabis is susceptible to it. So um that's a new one relatively new, we're all figure out you know what's going on there. Um is it something that's really going to be problematic? How can we manage it? Um so that does happen um on occasion.
0: Great, great, and it seems like the the biggest issue people were having is the the hemp aph- aphids. That seems like that's been you know from what I see on social media. I'm saying I'm not in, as far as practical. Is is that what you're seeing as well as some of the the biggest problem people deal with is the aphids?
1: It's it's uh it's out there. It's it's in every state that I work in. Um, oh. It is. Uh, I remember back in I want to say 2017 when I first heard about it. 2016 when i first heard about it it was not in california yet didn't take very long didn't take more than a year for i found it we found it at harborside um and then it's really blown up in this area in all of salinas and all of california it took uh oklahoma less than 2 months to get it after they legalized the first reports of it um it is a problem it's Uh, manageable with biological control for sure Uh, the real the real one that still concerns me the most is um, hemp russet mite Mm. that's that can be a devastating pest Um, it's it's at the top of there for me along with the hop latent byroid which is it's a disease not a not a pest but um, you know like I said I will work and all of IP management. Um, those two right now to me would be the ones that will hurt the farmers economic they're more likely to hurt farmers economically the the cannabis aphid yes also um but uh i think it's easier to manage than many think you know it's just about what methods you're using
0: and the russet mite is that the one that's microscopic you can't see it with your own eyes you can just see the damage on the plant
1: yeah, that's right. Um, it's like little uh,
0: worms on your plant.
1: Yeah, little, little carrots. Yeah, little little maggots. Um, but surprisingly, they are arachnids. They are mites, um, and they're the main issue with those is you can't see them until you have, it. and usually when you have damage, you have a massive population, so they're hard to find. Um, and uh they can get away from you easily it's like a it's like a smoldering ember that can catch fire quickly right um whereas larger pests you know you can see their damage sooner you can see them sooner um, aphids strips spider mites they're easier to detect and you can make decisions early in the infestation that can help you control them more easily with hemp rust it might in my opinion the the main control for hemp rust mite is not bringing them into your grow, right. That more growers have to really focus on that because it's a, it's a difficult one for the, for the friend. There's a lot of sharing of plant tissue, you know, in the industry. And um, a lot of growers don't, don't know how to scout for hemp rust. It might, or what to do if they bring in plants that have it. Once you have it, it's kind of like, like a virus, it could be with you forever, you know, and you get, you want to manage it and get flare and uh, manage it, um, manage flare-ups. Um, and I think the best place to manage it is in veg. Um, once you have it in flower, if you haven't managed it, you're in, you're in a tough place. We don't have biological control and the sprays that are available to you for hemp resumite, um, you really wouldn't want to apply in flower.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like if it happens, it's just kind of like the worst case scenario. You kind of get the, got to get the best of what you can out of the crop and harvest it. And I guess it's going to go to some, some vape pen near you or something like that.
1: That could be the only solution occasion, you know, on occasion. Um, When we were, when we, when I first battled it for the very first time, I had never battled the rust it might before. So it was, it was tough figuring it out. But nowadays there's, there's good, uh, there's, there are good uh, practices. It's not, it's not terribly difficult to manage it. What's ter- What's difficult is to find it before it gets to flower. That's really where the danger is, in my opinion. If you If you know how to find it, if you have some good scouts that can um, pick it up before the population explodes on you, then managing it in veg is not tough.
0: Good, good. That's That's what people want to hear. Is I think there's people that uh, are really good with. Um, Uh, a program and, you know, scouting. And and I I think some people with cannabis, especially with the home grower, that's kind of like all you should be doing constantly is hanging out with your plants and chilling and and feeling the vibes, but scouting and checking out and and seeing what's going on with those things. Um, So that brings us to one of our questions. I believe I was going to ask you about scouting and um, how often should somebody be scouting their plants to be looking for bugs? Uh,
1: Most, most all, um, operations recommend weekly um i i've worked in like I told you i worked in organic herbs that's what i did a thorough weekly scouting doesn't all have to be done in one day cuz you know you may not be smart to do it in one day um you might be there's there's periods of the day where our, which are better for finding pests right mm-hmm. not too hot um obviously um but yeah, I have a, a, just a general rule of thumb. Um, and this maybe only applies to a large greenhouse. Mm-hmm. In um, but I, I throw out there, um, to growers two to three hours of scouting per week for every 10,000 square feet.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: that sh- that's sufficient. To m- that's sufficient. I think now that, that will vary, like I said, on the big, you know, time of the year, um, temperatures, um, the past pressures, um, and uh, and even the pests. Um, you know, russet might to me. If you find russet, might um, to me, it's like all hands on deck. Our focus is find it. You know, where is it? What strains is it in? Isolate it, and then treat it. And to me, you know, find that it's such a to me, it's a it it's the most problematic in my opinion, um, indoors, uh, out, outdoors. It's I think it's caterpillars outdoors, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, you, um, you, you might want to spend a lot more time should you find a hemp might outbreak, right. Um, than that two to three hours. Um, so, you know, but that's just a general rule of thumb. Like I said, it might not in indoor operations but it gives people you know the understanding that yes there has to be some labor resources dedicated to scouting and what i always say is you know scouting has, has got to be that it's got to be scouting it's not um, you know i talked to a grower i said how frequently do you scout for pests they'll say oh i scout for pests daily so you mean well when i'm de or i'm um fixing irrigation line or, you know, whatever I'm doing. It's like, no, that's called multitasking. That's not, (laughs) that's not scouting. Scouting means focusing on specifically pests. Um, So every place I've worked, um, they're usually the same people that are involved in applications, spray applications and biological control. Okay. So
0: what is when you're doing a biological control? Um, what does that consist of?
1: So, what it is basically is, um, you know, you can match hot pests, um, using mother nature. Okay. Um, one of the things you know we, we're doing when we when, with agriculture is, you know, we're, we're creating an unnatural ecosystem, it's not what is present in nature. Okay. And nature has this balance. We talk about, right. Predators evolved, predators evolved to eat those things. Um, and so there's a balance where you very rarely see a situation where, you know, a particular insect gets out of control and is devastating, you know, natural forests or, you know, you know, plant systems or whatever. Right. Um, yeah it happens usually it's because of intervention you know, uh, because of you know we have lots of bugs that have threatened to destroy you know right now threatening to destroy lots of forests uh, but it's invasive species right where there was no natural enemy here to to combat it right so yeah. it quickly got out of control so you look at that example okay there were no natural enemies there to 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 keep naturally under control you created something similar in an environment in a like a greenhouse type environment or an indoor environment where you've made this perfect environment for a plant which is the perfect environment for the pest that feeds on it but you don't have the natural enemies to to help you you know defend don't have to the, the crop yeah so that's where we come in um but there's a couple of ways to look at biological control what our company's doing mainly is what's called the augmentative biocontrol, where we rear and provide the enemies that the grower puts into their grow and, you know, augmentative, adds, adds the predators to the grow. Um, pets are usually better at reproducing than predators are. They have different strategies for reproducing, like aphids, for example, I mean, aphids are born pregnant. You can, you can actually find the, you know, what would be, I guess, the embryo of an aphid the day it's born. Wow. Okay. So you know, population explosion waves survive, you know, that's, that's how they thrive. Um, Their predators do not multiply that fast. Yeah. So what you got is a situation where in nature, yeah one predator will eventually keep that pest population under control right um but it might take it some time that pest population might climb significantly the predator pest the predator population will also climb along with it and eventually the the predator population is big enough to to bring it back down and you know to a lower population these cycles are normal in nature you don't have that in a disturbed system like a greenhouse or or an indoor cannabis operation, so that's where you augment. You put the pit up there because, like I said, the pest will out populate, out produce the predator.
0: I've always noticed that, too, when I was like, oh, my God, I see a couple of aphids. Let me go down to the grocery store, to the nursery and buy a whole bunch of uh, ladybugs. And I just Mm -hmm. find the ladybugs just flying away and just like going like 100 (laughs) feet away. It's like, I'm out of here. Like, I don't want to be in this greenhouse right now. Like, you know, it's like trying to. And then I was like, "Okay, the only way this is going to work is if I trap them in here and then they're still probably not going to want to eat the actual pests. Like, this is just so counterintuitive to the situation. So,
1: yeah. Yeah ladybird beetles are are notorious for that. Um when I first played with them in a greenhouse that's exactly my experience. Um within one day they were, you know, uh, I used I used some strategies that I mean I thought were clever. One of the aphids that I was battling was an onion aphid and um it tended to blow up in like winter time um not so much during the summer. Um and so what I would do is buy the ladybirds when we were going to get a a few weeks of rain you know for rain because they actually preferred staying in the greenhouse over going outside when it was raining so that helped keep more of them there they want Um, to keep their wings dry i'm guessing yeah yeah it's just not as attractive but you got to remember that ladybird beetles are wild caught so their instinct is to fly when when they come out of hibernation because they're caught out in the world and brought and put it into coolers and then when the orders start up they're sold um, so their instinct is, is to fly um, they're they're going to want to leave the area that's just instinctual so keeping them there is tough um you know we have other options for um, aphid management that you know aren't as i guess what was the word um, unpredictable as ladybirds um and it's what I no- normally recommend. I don't recommend ladybirds. Um, yeah. First that, of all,
0: I think um, my my tactic has always been during veg. I do a lot of foliar spraying, and mm-hmm. um, I love dousing the plants with water. You know, and, and it's it's mm-hmm. for me. It's I'm on a small scale. It's hard to talk about when you're in a giant yeah. greenhouse. You know. But you know when you've got thirty plants in one gallon pots, and you could just squirt them all with the hose when they're all in the shade, mm-hmm. and just smack that bug with a heavy dousing of water, and and hopefully that's just when there's one or two of them they're hanging out. And mm-hmm. also if I've got aphids feeding off the plant, I know I probably got way too much nitrogen that I'm feeding it. It's just mm-hmm. just one thing that that I go into, so I start feeding a little bit more phosphorus and just trying to change the chemical makeup of what's up taking into the plant. Um, and, you know, try to change the game up a little bit. But, um, you know, that's always kind of been a tactic of mine. And uh, if things get crazy, I've always, the last three years, I've turned to Suth Oil X as a, mm. as a foliar spray. Um, but um, so what is one, one thing that you can't help people without? One tool, one one item that you're like, I can't leave the house and help you guys or I can't get my job done without it.
1: Oh, okay. Well, um, I guess I'm going to say that um, we already touched on monitoring. Um, if you've ever seen any of the other talks I've done that? I, I, I just go over this ad nauseum. Um, basically, training the growers the import on the importance of monitoring for pests, um, biological control, which is what. You know what I'm trying to help the grower learn or um, stick Really rests on um, this foundation um, that um, the pest pressure has to be low. You can't. It's really not a curative approach. It works much better as a preventative approach. Okay, yeah. so uh, at first, at first sight of a pest is when biological control should be triggered. That ink if they don't have a huge population, you don't need to release a ton of predators. So catching it early is important. So how do you catch it early? Put your eyes on the plant. That's, that's it. You have to look, like I was saying, um, you have to be trained. You have to have a protocol. Um, so my goal is always to make sure that the grower has some type of a protocol in place. And if they don't, to suggest some ideas on how they can scout for pests because, you know, avoiding sprays, you know, um, is important and, you know, biocontrol would be, you know, one way to do that. And, um, it just doesn't work as well unless you're in a preventative situation. So, um, so I, I'd say preaching modern is to me, the most important thing I could do to help a grower. Okay. So if
0: you could wave a wand right now and get rid of a bug or add a bug or just make a major change and be the wizard that fixes everything, what would that change be?
1: I guess right now, um, to me, the biggest threat is that hop latent viroid. I don't know how much you've experienced it or talked to growers. Um, seems like more and more growers are getting, getting the idea um, on how to you know, how to do that, how to, how to manage, um, populate and viroid. There's still just not enough. There aren't enough, uh, tools yet to do it. Um, you basically have the most important one would be the track and trace. So that's difficult to do. Um, best way to do that is actually laboratory testing, um, to find where it is, you know, who has it, what moms have it. Um, and then also, okay, which, what, came from those moms? Where are the clones that came from those? It's just like COVID, right? And it's like, as soon as somebody comes down with a diagnosis, then it's okay who have been in contact with since, you know, X amount of time or whatever. And then all those people get called and it's like, hey, you know, you, you were in contact with somebody that had COVID. You may want to go get yourself tested. So testing is still, I think, number one, there's that's becoming a little bit more um, affordable nowadays. And it is the way to eventually get yourself out of program there are some strategies for improving your sanitation especially when it comes to any type of injury to a plant whether it is you know de or cloning or anything um and lastly you you can clean up some you can clean up strains or at least we think you can clean up strains using certain techniques like um like tissue culture um but uh that's pretty much all i can think of um we haven't the breeders haven't developed the resistance strain yet. I suspect that is not a goal when they make breeding decisions. Um, but uh, yeah, we have very few, very few options for hoplite and viroid. Um, no doubt at some point we're going to come solution no longer be going to be the danger that I think it is now. Um, and something else will come, will come up. Right. Yeah. A new virus um, or a new Insect, uh, but right now that's where that's where I would put that's where I would wave my magic wand, um, you know, and in solve that hot and borrow get give the growers more tools.
0: Yep, well, good. Um, as far as um, I know you're mainly dealing with uh, the large greenhouses down in Salinas and, and large greenhouse grows. Um, a couple of years ago, there was one of our customers that was doing, couple of customers that were doing living soil and doing large soil beds down there, and and they were really happy with it, and they had a bunch of bombs and stuff, and um, I don't know if they're still doing that or what the situation's going on, uh. But are you do you deal with any living soil growers that are all soilless or uh, soil medium and and going that route?
1: Yeah, it's become more popular. I've um, I lived in LA for the first year working uh, for this company. Um, I moved down there, um, specifically because I wanted to open up the market more down out in California. So I did, um, work with a lot of the indoor guys in and around Los Angeles. Um, there's, there's growers in Oakland it tends to be an indoor, indoor grow, um, sort of approach. Um, and I've, I've picked up more living soil growers, over time. So yes, I, do. I do have a few. Great. Great. Probably, yeah.
0: probably
1: half a dozen, probably half a dozen.
0: Great. Great. So then my mm. next question is what do you see their biggest problem, uh, when they're going through that process? Do, is there any commonalities that you're seeing when you're servicing those customers?
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to say like a general sort of problem. Um, I don't know if it's, it's a problem, but how the growing, um, you know how they say, "Walk first, then run." You know, crawl first, <laughs> walk then run. T- biting off too much, more than you can chew with living soil, I think, can be problematic. Um, you really have to put in your hours because you're you're doing something that's more like upper division, you know, farming. It's it's you, know, it's a lot more simplified. You know, when it comes, you know, when you're using. Tried and true methods. You're you're doing something where you're really getting deep into, you know, uh, what's going on in the rhizosphere, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and you can you can really screw it up um, if you don't know what you're doing. Or, and it's also kind of like uh, driving a, a fast car on a windy road. Any any mistake can can just cause a cascade of problems, you know, downstream. So it's it's something that I wouldn't recommend someone just jump into and say, Hey, you know, I, that sounds like fun, you know, it's maybe get some practice first. Cause you're, you're really, you're really um, trying to fine tune or mimic nature anyway. Right. Um, and we just don't know enough about, you know, so different soil types, different growing environments, what lighting systems, what cover crops, you know, all that kind of stuff. What sort of inoculum of the soil should we be doing? Um, just all that stuff is is sort of new. There aren't any other crops that are really doing living soil. Um, you know, you got soil. Um soil crops, crops are grown outdoors or, or in pots. And then you have, um, you know, more organic approaches or even biodynamic approaches where they resemble, you know, there's more attention being paid to what's going on below the soil, what's going on with the microorganisms and everything else and, you know, nutrient cycling and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but we don't really have, um, that I can think of another crop where you're growing uh, plants in large beds of soil and trying to essentially, um, you know keep that same soil and uh, uh, you know and and in, in perpetuity you know keep it fertile keep it disease free in perpetuity it's not it's not uh, it's a challenge is what i'm saying Um, yeah
0: especially because you don't have the ability of like the down part of the season where it's winter and you're not growing in those and the soil can get a chance to rebuild itself and go through the the successions of life that normally can happen with soil i mean even if you're a lettuce farmer and salinas and you're still growing you know you know, most of the months out of the year, I'm still, there's some time throughout the season where those, those, uh, fields are let to sit, you know, and kind of rest, you know, and then that's when they do all the prep work that they need to do to re rebuild that soil and make sure it's going to have the much nutrients in it to get through the next season, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I've, I've often wondered if there are any growers that are doing that, um, uh, living soil growers where they're actually taking beds and giving them a period of time where, you know, you move them aside and you don't grow a crop in them. Um, You know, the, the, you know, um, cover cropping was about, it's still mostly about um, growing plants that are going to help the next, the the real crop in a field, right? Um, It's, it's about um, what those, what those other plants can do primarily to the soil, oftentimes get in uh, before the new planting um, not I'm not sure if there are enough uh, indoor soil growers that are doing something like that right yeah because um, nobody has the, crop-
0: the logistic ability to be moving those large masses in and out of these rooms and mm-hmm. bringing them to another area where they can set and rest um, mm-hmm. We had one grower in Colorado that had a perpetual harvest room. Where there was one room that was always flowering, and then they were just taking these small four by four beds with pallet jacks and just moving them into the room, bringing them out, moving them in, doing that kind of thing. But it still can be a logistic nightmare. You know, you need to move mm-hmm. one bed out, and you got six other beds you got to move. It's like, you know, moving around a bunch of uh, cars in a in a shop. You know, it's like <laughs> right. it can be can be can be crazy. But yeah, I'm sure yeah. there's there's definitely people doing it.
1: Yeah, that you know, I think that, that that might improve and, like, reduce the challenges that a lot of growers face with uh, with living soil. I mean, there's always the option of just, you know, figuring out how long you want to keep a bed and then just say, call it done, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, and you just think about the whole concept of crop rotation, right? Um, you think about strawberries, for example. There are fields that are so loaded with pathogens that you can get maybe – one profitable uh crop from it and if you plant another strawberry uh crop after that one it it's a it's a loss so then farmers will rotate you know other crops that are not acceptable to pathogens just to reduce that load of pathogens it's, you know they they die out um and uh, and then after doing that rotation you bring the strawberries back and you can you can make a profit again in a sense it's kind of counter to what a lot of people are doing with living soil right they just continue to use it and it's not only about what you're adding to it. You know? um, it's 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 so, it's it's really complex and um i you know i, I like the concepts it's it is the like like i was saying per division uh, cannabis growing
0: yeah definitely it's it's some high-end stuff and, and not to go back too far but i'm just thinking of a question that i wanted to ask earlier when you're talking about testing moms for that crop latent virus c virus um what kind of laboratory would you send that sample to and what kind of a sample would that be is that a leaf sample is that a tissue sample of the stock um, and what kind of a laboratory are we sending that to
1: so there's a there's a couple ways of, of handling that testing. Um, both of the labs that test cannabis, um, you know, the ones that are testing for microbials and metals and pesticides, also tests for that viroid. Okay, oh. that the the majority that I've I've talked to, you know, they realize the importance of it so they test for the viroid. You can also go to plant um, just regular plant pathology lab or just uh, you know, I live here in Salinas, there, there's a lot of agriculture. So there, there are these local plant pathology labs. Some of them will have the assays. Most of them have the equipment to do it. And the smart ones would buy the assays or just kits um, and be able to offer that, you know, offer that service. Um, and then there's, uh, there's actually in-house uh, sample uh, testing. And that to me is um, in my view, um, one of these instruments can run you about 10 K um, not sure what maintenance and reagents is going to run you, but are a certain size of an operation? And I would say it's probably like when you're around maybe half fake or large investing it to have it in-house, because what that does is it really reduces the cost of each test and gives you quick turnaround and you're able to make fast decisions and you can test a lot of samples in one day. So I have I do work with a couple of growers that um own one of these machines to test um to test for the hop and viroid. They're those that are doing the best job, in my opinion, cleaning up. So they'll test moms regularly and you know, as they find them, they get rid of them. Um and little by little you'll you'll get, you know, you'll get clean. Yeah. Um Sampling is, my understanding is it's mostly leaf, leaf tissue that you're, that you're, uh, um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, I can think of a lot of ways, you know, you could, for example, test. uh, So one of the things we, we don't think that the viral particles are at the same concentration in every single part of the plant you could have branches that have more of them or less you could have branches that are more severely affected by the symptoms of divide than others right so what that tells us is okay well we've got certain we're gonna we're gonna come up with some false positives here right i mean false negatives here right where our testing is saying you know this is this is free of viroid but it's really below the detection limit of use, right? So the way to avoid, the way to kind of, you know, hurdle that is to test multiple parts of the plant. So multiple leaves. Um, one of the growers that I work with who's doing the in-house testing, they they feel pretty confident that leaves on the lower part of the canopy will express or will have a higher uh, tighter concentration of the of the viroid particles and so you'll get fewer false negatives sampling from lower in the canopy but uh, they're still sampling all throughout but that's just their observation i'm not sure i'm not a microbiologist i'm not sure what what the latest is on that um, and uh so yeah most mostly it's leaf, leaf tissue um one, one other idea I've, I've thought about is um you know a, a composite a composite sample. Um, when you're taking clones, you may be taking them from one individual mom. Okay. As you're cutting the clones, you know, you put them in water, take them to the cloning station. What would be so difficult about slicing, you know, just the tiny bit out of the, you know, the petiole from all of those clones and then macerating that sort of composite of clones from that mom, macerating that and testing it to see what comes out obviously some of them are gonna have very low titer so they're gonna dilute the the result but then there may be some that are such high titer that they'll put you in there so it's kind of like okay a quick safety and simple easy right? You can do it when you're doing another operation another production operation so um but yeah these are just ideas i don't know if um they're gonna be useful and if that's the way um growers are gonna go
0: and when they're when they're testing these samples, is it like where they're taking a bunch of leaves and they're macerating them and using just the juice and then putting that juice in, in this machine for it to I uh, say juice, but obviously sap um to do the test?
1: Yeah, what I'm seeing is there's some reagent that you buy and then um you macerate the the leaf and then you soak it in that reagent. And I, I what I'm what I'm assuming is that extracts viroid particles. right and then you take that liquid and and run that and you do my recollection is you could do about geez it was i think it was eight samples in an hour so that's what i recall don't quote me so you know you basically can just chain somebody to that machine and just (laughs) have them running samples all day you know um and and it's been very effective you know it's what works best. It's not cheap. It's an, if you're going to go in-house, it's, it's going to be an initial investment. But from what I have seen, the growers that are doing this, um, they figured it out. That's, that's the way to manage it.
0: Yeah. And keep your stuff clean. That's clean and, and keep stuff mm-hmm. separate. That's obviously treated. And, and I think it comes down to in people not having good practices of quarantine things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just not being very knowledgeable about those things and quarantining and, and having those precautions and cleanliness. Obviously, I bet you that's a big one. Um, mm-hmm.
1: I know a lot of the- yeah. The the uh, the you know, as each state legalizes, I've noticed um, this rush to get in to you know this green wave, um, and growers are just. I mean, mo- mostly owners and investors are like, "We got to get crops out. We got to get crops out." So there's not a lot of focus. Paid to where they're getting their starting material right and this is you know no one else's fault but but the grower or the whoever's forcing that they're you know got a crop going without doing some type of quarantining or scouting um you know if, if you take the trouble to do that you can start clean um if you don't yeah you might you know get your crops faster. But like I said, once you have russet mite, it's very difficult to eradicate right from, from the entire grow. Most growers battle with hemp russet mite for long, um, same thing with this thyroid. Um, if you don't know you're bringing it in, um, that could be really devastating. Um, and it could end up costing you a lot more, I think than if you were doing better monitoring.
0: Yeah. And for me on a small scale, um, I've been growing cannabis for eight or nine, ten years, and I've lost crops to russet mites. I've almost lost crops to uh, aphids um, and, um, and also just mold, mold bud rot just just afterwards you know so there's just conditions and certain things and and things you come across and you know now i kind of have my process of knowing you know what is a healthy looking plant what is an unhealthy looking plant and trying to close the gap of having just those healthy plants And, you know, having, you know, if it, if it's not growing at the same rate of the other plants, I'm like really looking at that plant and wondering why, what's going on? Does it need to be transplanted? You know, what's, does it have a disease? Like there's got to be something wrong with it because they all should be growing at the same rate and same pace because they're all taken care of the same. So um, you know, my kind of process is, you know, only bringing healthy plants in through that process, um, visually. I mean, I don't have very much else usage, uh, besides that. And, you know, a USB camera that I can hook up to my, my computer and be looking at these leaves and doing some scouting. Um, but luckily I've, I've had a lot of experience in knowing, you know, oh my God, okay, there's some marks on my leaf. I've got some pest pressure. Now it's time to treat with some sort of a foliar spray and then come back with some beneficial bugs to help, you know, balance that population again. Um, And then hopefully managing my my nutrition well enough to where, you know, the the bugs aren't wanting to eat up all this extra nitrogen that the plant can't use. Um, Do you see any problems with my plant at all there?
1: No, that's that's good. The only comment is... um... With this viroid, and I keep going back to it, this may not be a big deal like two or three years from now, but um, it's, it's called a latent viroid for a reason. You can't see symptoms in every plant, and you can't necessarily see symptoms every time of the year or every strain. So, really, when you say, I'm bringing in healthy plants, it's, you just have to make sure that looking at them the right way, because they, be, they can be like like the COVID. It can car- you can have a carrier that's asymptomatic, And then once you bring it into the into the grow is when you get the problems downstream. So, yeah, I mean, I wish there were more nurseries that guaranteed, you know, disease and pest um, free stock. Um, This is the way the rest of agriculture works. Um, It's my understanding that if you want to buy seed for certain crops, let's just say tomatoes. Right. Um, The seed producers that are selling those seeds to the growers have to provide testing. You know, this is probably some uh, food and drug FDA mandate that they have to provide testing for certain viruses because those those crops are so susceptible to that virus that it's you can't sell seed without providing a certificate that said, look, it was tested and it's virus-free. So that hasn't happened in cannabis yet you know, maybe something to talk about. Maybe, um, I think it's because we kind of, we don't have, I think that the climate has affected nurseries less so they can offer less service. If you get what I'm saying, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, you don't like it that there's spider mite damage on these plants. Okay, well, I'll just sell them to this guy over here who will buy them. You know, it's, there's just not, There aren't, they're out there, but aren't in nurseries that, you know, even if they charge more for a plant, you know, will guarantee to the grower that they're not going to be bringing in a problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that's got to be scary. Even as a nursery provider, I've gotten some, some of the healthiest plants I've ever dealt with this year from one nursery. And I've got other plants that are from a friend. And I would have no idea if I've got hot latent virus. It's just going to smack me in the face if I do have it. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling it's just going you know, to come out of nowhere. Um, and is there anything I can do at this point, considering I'm still in veg, I've got my, my plants planted in their soil beds. I mean, they're permanently mm-hmm. in their homes. Is there anything I can do to try to prevent that hot latent virus right now, or is it already too late?
1: No, I'm testing. You can still test. Like I said, if you want, um, later I can send you an email with, you know, a a list of testing labs. Um, you're in California, right?
0: Yeah. Sacramento, not too far from So
1: there, there are some up there in Sacramento, um, you know, talk to your testing lab, you know, if this this is a trove and you're required to do pesticide testing anyway, you know, they, they also sell, um, viroid testing and other disease as well other disease testing. Um, I think it's like on average right now it's about 20 bucks a test. Um, don't quote me. Um, some labs have very very sensitive equipment and they'll charge you like 200 but but it has there's that reduction of the false negative right? they get down to a point where it's like we're really confident that this plant does not have it. Whereas with other testing techniques, you might not pick it up. Right. Mm. The less expensive techniques. So that's why m- multiple testing The way. It's hard to justify $200 a pop. It's a little easier to justify it. 20 bucks. The in-house testing it's going to be under five bucks a plant. I'm pretty sure that's obviously a lot, you know, your budget would allow you to test more frequently. Um, so testing, you can still do testing. Um There's a few things you can do. Um, sanitation-wise, haven't been uh, as rigorously as other crops that also suffer from similar types of diseases. Um, you know, multiple. You know, you'll you'll see often um, people cloning from multiple plants. Um, that's well. That's. That's that's all well and good, but we don't know yet if this virus is transmitted to injury. Right? Suspect that it probably is. So you get a little bit of sap from a on a on a, some scissors, and then you go to the next plant and cut it, and you've just inoculated another plant. Right? So steps to avoid that kind of movement of particles from one plant to another, um, you know, sanitation of tools, um, making. Maybe it's not justifiable to do um, a sanitation between each cut, but maybe you can justify sanitizing between every mom.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. That Um, can't be too hard to have a separate solution. You can dump your plants in and have a clean paper towel to clean it off with or something like that. I mean, that doesn't sound too expensive and sounds like a just a good precaution you should be doing. You know, since we've got these diseases we're dealing with now, it just seems like it needs to be a part of everybody's SOPs.
1: Yeah. Until we know for sure, it's, it is something that, you know, you, you can do that other industries do it. Other, other crops do this. So if it works in other crops, it could work here too. Again, we don't know if it's transmitted through injury. We don't know if it's, if it's by, by pests either. Um, you know, that, that's just too early in the game. So, um, so yeah it, it, you know if that if you have that control, if you can justify you know uh, cleaning between plants that's that's something you know smart. I saw a knife there's a knife um that's got a little like a little uh, test attached to it um, that you can fill with um, sanitizing solution and um you just literally um you make a cut and then you shake the knife and the sanitating sanitizing solution runs over the blade and you're essentially just like like that that quickly re re disinfecting your blade even between each cut you know that's, there's that idea that that seemed really smart to me I I recommend that that knife to a lot of the growers because it's so easy to sanitize that way right yeah um, yeah
0: i can just be like cut, cut cut you can see like all these people and they're right. working and be like Doing yep. their crazy thing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> great. Great. Well, there's a couple of other questions I have for you. Um, other important one I would like to touch on is uh, foliar spraying. Um, mm-hmm. you know, what are good precautionary stuff? People should be foliar spraying and, you know, what are the mistakes? I think I feel like a lot of people make mistakes in foliar spraying. I, I used to completely drench these plants. Like, I mean, it'd be just dripping, dripping wet, you know? And then it's like, I look at the bottom side of the leaf and I'm like, wow, it's dry. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I think I totally messed this whole thing up now. So let's talk about foliar spraying a little bit.
1: So you're talking about both pesticides and nutrition, right?
0: Yeah, I would like to preach mm-hmm. that people need to foliar spray nutrition to push the plant okay. further. Um, mm-hmm. But then again, you're going to run into problems. You're eventually, uh, you're going to run get into a point in your growing career where you're going to have to spray something to kill some bugs. So yeah,
1: so coverage is the name of the game, right? Making sure that all those areas where the pests can live are covered with the material. Likewise, for a nutrient, you want to, you know, make sure that it gets on the plant where it's going to be absorbed. Right. So what can kind of affect um, a, a real one that's I see very routinely is dense canopies. OK, so canopy management practices can. Re- really know help with spray coverage whether it's pesticides or nutrients um what's that mean that that probably means separating plants giving them more space it it probably means doing more pruning and that stuff Um, you know that's super critical um to 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 have to make sure to give yourself the um give yourself that advantage so that that spray can penetrate that canopy Um, another one is technique okay Um, some sprayers you know, talking about the actual sprayer, um, are better than others. They have a technique. You mentioned dousing the top surface of the plant, but not hitting the bottom. There are ways to get both the top and bottom of the leaf, right? And, and, um, there are just some people that are better trained and, and are better at spraying, um, that in that regard and, and produce better coverage. Um, you can train your crew to do what you need them to do. And you can also monitor their spray patterns or whether or not they're actually, you know, giving you good coverage. Um, Also the equipment, there's all types of application equipment that you can use. You can use pneumatic, uh, you know, you know, the the regular pneumatic sprayer. Um, There are foggers um, that you can use. There are, um, you know, electrostatic sprayers using the right equipment you know, can also affect coverage. You can get better coverage using one equipment for these plants here or this stage of plants um, versus you know this other equipment that's better for this other stage of plants you know what I mean so you have to you have to think about that your nozzles are really important too um see how using paint sprayers paint sprayers are designed to paint things okay um there are there's you know uh in plant sprayers sprays that are intended for foliar sprays were designed for that purpose so you know you may not have the best nozzle on one of those paint sprayers you know so you need to really think about all that Um, you know to me coverage is best because what you want is you want to you want each spray to be effective and cheap Okay, and if you don't get good coverage, you may have to spray more frequently, which, you know, obviously means it wasn't effective and it's going to be more expensive for you.
0: Yeah, it's a massive amount of labor. Like I remember one year, my whole game Mm. was like, okay, I'm going to full your spray every other night. And I just the amount of like time and stress and just like mental ability that it puts on yourself is just like it's it takes a lot out of
1: you. Yeah. Yeah, not to mention, um, you know, you've got, um, you know, you have to worry about the people that are spraying and their safety. You um, know, materials that we use in this crop are are not really that dangerous. Um, you know, it's it's still there are labels require some PPE, so you have to make sure that the employees are trained. Um, here in California, uh, you know, the county insists that you have training records um, and that you have somebody that is qualified to train a sprayer. And if you go out and get yourself a permit, a legal permit, they can visit you and do an audit and ask you, where's your training records? They can go to a sprayer and ask him, Hey, you know, here's this product. What do you use? What's your, your personal protective equipment for this product? They need to be able to answer, you know, so it can be expensive on a regulatory side too, not just on the labor side right? Developing a plant in your county. Uh, So there's that and um, yeah, these are just like sort of like the hidden costs that people don't think about. That's why, you know, it is not it is possible to have a biological control program that is cheaper and more effective than a spray program, okay? It just takes some practice and some skill, okay? Uh, But yes, you know, if you think about it, there are other crops out there that the margins are much lower than what you get for cannabis, right? Much, much lower yet. They're using biological control, right? So obviously the work's been done. They figured out all those hidden costs. Spraying is not as economical or as effective as using biological control. I'm not going to say that that's going to be anyone coming right out that using it for the first time. They got to, you got to, learn how to do it
0: yeah oh yeah definitely
1: Man. okay so is there anything
0: um that we haven't touched on today that you think is really important that we need to educate people about
1: i mean if you get this uh, ipm i can go on for like hours and hours to be honest um it's the favorite it's my favorite part of the day talking to the grower coming up with ideas and then seeing solutions, that's the best. When they come, can get back to you and say, oh, my God, this worked. It's like, great. That's more confidence that, that the advice I'm giving the grower is, is um, you know, is something that's really going to help. Confidence to be able to give that same advice to other growers. So that's why, you know, working with the growers, is that that's my favorite part, coming up with with strategies and then seeing the results. So like I said, I can talk about it forever, and it's what I do with, my customers, you know, we come up with programs and the whole goal is for them to learn it, um, so, you know, succeed with their IPM program, come in in a reasonable budget and um, make our product shine. Really, that's my job. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say um, we did talk a little bit about Living Soil. I think we're going to do you're doing a a, a conference, right? My plan is still to attend. Um, Suzanne, I think Suzanne's the one that introduced you to me, right?
0: Yeah, I invited her yeah. to speak at our event, and she told me that um, that uh, her schedule's a little too crazy, and she's got a lot of clients uh, right yeah. now, and um, everything's a little crazy with her, and she suggested yeah. uh, just the route that we're going down that you might be just as beneficial, even if, if not more, with what you're dealing with and what's going on. So. Um, well
1: one of the differences is I I deal primarily with cannabis growers so I see a lot so um yeah and and you know and we'll figure out what topic to discuss from for me to talk about but but yeah if if people attend that or you know get the video for that I you know I'm, I'm sure I have much to say for but, but yeah reach out um you know we don't charge for consultation our customers that's just part of the deal we want our products to shine we want our products to work for you so you basically get you know my help um as long as you know you're working with us and um and uh yeah uh, i would say you know the only thing else i would say is um you can reach me you get a hold of me by going on um uh in our you can call our are Insectory in Reading and they can put you in touch with me. If, if you're a California grower, um, they're going to direct you to me. Uh, our website is Insectory.com. We have YouTube videos. Um, you'd go under Beneficial Insectory, look at our logo, and maybe you can put my email um, at the end of this podcast so people can reach out. Um, you know, I, I'm available for, you know, I, we get a lot of, of of uh, customers who, you know, attended a podcast like this and say, Hey, I heard you talking. I want to learn more about this. And then we start working together. So it's really the So I, I feel like my main goal is give good advice to the growers. So, you know, that's what we're here for.
0: Yeah. And that's what that's what the goal is. And that's the whole reason of the podcast is we had a few people in the last couple of months that are like, man, I just need to know more about this subject. And, and that's obviously because they've been getting taken over by bugs or they're just not understanding the situation. Yeah. So it's really important that people figure out exactly what's going on in their specific grow. I think that's the biggest thing is it's gonna be really hard for you to help them if you don't if they don't know, first of all, what problems they have and the extents of their problems. So I hope by everybody listening to this you guys have gotten a chance to understand, you know, what you need to be doing for when you're scouting and how much time you need to actually you know, like be spending just scouting and not fixing pipes and happen to be looking up and found a problem. Like you know, I, I know that's how things go. Is you're on a farm and there's a pipe break and all everything stops. We've got to fix this. Every everything's done until this one little task happens, and that's farming. That's with every crop. Um, but you know, we really have to plan out our day and schedule that scouting. And um, like I don't, I don't uh, have my dad scout. He's a sixty year old man. He's great at watering and keeping soil. You know, wet and knowing, you know, hey, the plants are doing good, the plants aren't doing good, we got a problem, we don't got a problem, but I'm not going to count on him for, for knowing what bugs are on these plants, you know, I got to come in myself and take that responsibility of knowing that, you know, things are going in the right direction, um, so, yeah. Yeah.
1: Fortunately, you know, the cannabis growers have shown themselves to be like the most passionate of, of all farmers that I've ever met. They're very attentive to the crop. There's, it's more than just money making, there's passion there. There's, it's a lifestyle. So, um, that's why I really like working with cannabis growers because a lot of them realize, okay, this guy might know what he's talking about. Let's see. Right. And, uh, and you'll see that their dedication is what helps them, you know, solve the problem. It's really what it is. It's them taking you seriously and then t- trying things out, and then um, and then they're able to solve problems most of the time, right? We can't we can't win them all, but um, but yeah, I mean that's what we're here for. Reach out to us, and, you know, um, use us as a resource, and um, um, check out some of our YouTube videos. Look on our website, see what you find interesting on there, and. You know, if you want to reach out, um, I cover. Let's see, I cover California, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and uh, well, that's my territory. But most of my most of my customers are here in California because um, you know it's been legal longer. Um, but uh, yeah, just you reach out to one of us, and you know we'll be glad to help guide you and help you find solutions. Great,
0: great, and the best way to reach out to you guys is probably to start at the website. I think you said what was the do, website? Yeah,
1: uh, go on the website. I'm sure we have something on Instagram. Um, not sure what that is, but you'll find that on the website. I'm not, I'm not social media savvy. Um, I don't do any Instagramming or anything like that. Um, but yeah, we have a, an Instagram, and um, you know, when you, you can just say, "Hey, I, I need to know," so I need to know Saul's contact info, um, and then hopefully at the end of this, you can you can flash. You know, my my email or yes. email, um, my even my phone number. You have my phone number if you want, no big deal. That's great. Go ahead and give them that. Um and uh and yeah, I'll, you know, I'm planning to be there in February um at your event. Um, so if you attend the event, you know, um we can talk then. Also, yeah.
0: and I would love to have you guys um, set up a little table, you know, and maybe have some oh, of yeah. the other people there, too. So you can have somebody answering questions because, uh, you know, people are going to be speaking and then you're going to be done speaking. And then there's going to be like five people that bum rush you and have to ask you a bunch of questions. And then there's going to be people that want to meet you back at your booth and ask you a bunch of stuff. Um so, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, good. And this will be my first time actually talking about the event publicly. We've chatted about it a little bit, but we're just getting ready to launch our Eventbrite and all of our social media stuff. And we're going to host a a really cool event in Nevada City um, in February of 2023 at the Miners Foundry. It's a really beautiful site. We're going to get to speak in the Stone Room, which is a really old hall from the 1880s. And they literally used to make metal parts and gears and machinery in this room. So there's a lot of history. It's going to be a lot of cool sounds and uh, we're going to have 150 to 200 very, very passionate living soil growers that want to learn from people. Um, I, I keep changing the schedule, but um, I think right now, and this would be a good time to talk to even you about it and get your opinions, is I, I kind of want to have meet the laboratory and them learning about taking samples and talking to these testing facilities and getting that stuff kind of first, like, that might be the most okay. important thing on day one is them to learn, you know, what tests do I need to take? How do I need to be collecting these samples? What laboratories can I send them to? How do I make mm-hmm. that correction? Like, oh, my God, I've got all this data in front of me, and it looks like the frickin matrix. You know, I'm not Keanu Reeves. I can't just pop a pill and figure this out. So, <laughs> you know, um I think it's important for people to know that stuff first and then us, um, on day two to have of uh, practical growers talking about how they they make this work and having about other knowledgeable people. So, you know, I'd probably have you on day one meet the laboratory and, and being later a little bit later on in the day um, and talking about how we can close the loop with these laboratories and test. You know, a lot of this is going to be people like uh, Bill from Logan Labs is going to be testing your soil. That's, that's going to be on the beginning part of the grow process. Well, while we're in the grow, we're going to need you and your expertise. So, you know, maybe I have you a little bit later on on the day, uh, just because it's part of the process. I want people to learn this stuff in the same flow that they would actually be using these, these things. So I, I, I think that would be helpful. What do you, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean that that'd be great. We we talk kind of more in general about IPM and cannabis here at this talk. I do have, like I said, some experience with living soil growers. I know of some of the the pests that are more prevalent using these kinds of systems. I know some of the strategies for you know helping with those. Other times it's not even biocontrol, it's mostly cultural practices, um, things like that to to help uh to help keep you know, the pests that might pop up in this, these particular, you know, living soil systems more readily pop up, be able to, you know, manage them, you know, more effectively. Um, You know, so, um, and other things too, I mean, I, I, I like to say, I don't have a green thumb, I have a brown thumb, because I like, you know, composting. And uh, I like, uh, you know, I really am fascinated by, you know, the, the root zone. So there are, there are things you can do to make the root zone more, you know, help you with pest management, both both arthropod pests and disease. And I, you know, want to to try some of the things I've learned um, because they jive very well with with living soil approaches. Um, I'm I'm really excited. I just uh, got um, got a new customer um, in the Bay Area. Um, who has a living soil, he's starting from scratch. It's, they're, they're doing a cover crop. They're doing some legumes and some grasses on um, as a cover crop. They're, in, they're not even planting a crop in yet. Um, and I've been talking to him about some of the things I've been learning about um, just making you know, the soils better for IPM. Um, mm. and he's, he's interested because it goes right along with a lot of what they're doing, steering the microbes, you know, the microbe community down there, steering it in a particular direction, direction to help you with pest management as well. Right. So when, you know, whatever you want to do, um, in February, let's, you know, let's scheme it out and kind of like you did, you know, throw out some ideas. Okay. What do you think you can talk about here? And then, we'll decide on something and we'll decide on the time you want me to be up there uh, talking. And, uh, and yeah, it's whatever you think is going to be more valuable to, you know, the, the audience.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, we're going to get together a bunch of the speakers on a big zoom call possibly and, and be breaking down like, Hey, You're the first one on, you're going to be talking about this, you know, and these are the the goals of everybody. Like we want to have one big goal here, which is helping people maintain a soil mass for a long term and and help them to be able to reuse it forever. And yeah, maybe you said, maybe there's a certain point that there's some tests come up that disqualify this soil from us to be continuing allowing to use it. Like one of the most common ones that I've seen is uh, parasitic nematodes. You know, let's say you get some parasitic nematodes. Well, we might just need to wipe the board clean. We really yeah. might need to.
1: Even in conventional agriculture where they are allowed to use uh uh really powerful fumigants for nematodes, they're they are really tough to control. You you get an orchard that's got um that that you know, a citrus orchard that has a root knot nematode. I think you have that for life. There's so many there's, you know, because they 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 can hide so well. You navigate the soil properly, so even if you have those tools available, there's really nothing organic that's that good against nematodes. I mean, if there was, we would be hearing about it for years now, right? There, there's just yeah. Certain things can help, I think, but um, but yeah. At that point, you're just like, hey, I have an opportunity to ditch this bed. You know, maybe do get nematode count. By the way monitoring for nematodes is super easy um i learned how to do that in in uh in school um in the plant pathology class i took it super easy to do um i don't know how many living soil growers do it um but it, i don't know why you wouldn't you know it's uh but uh yeah if that if that's an issue certainly more growers be trained on how to do this so they can do it in-house and they can say hey you know i just i need to cut it here this is it you know yeah, so, yeah, maybe that's that'll be good a
0: reason for for reaching out to you. Is maybe we will, maybe somebody will feel kind enough to gain that knowledge themselves and actually email you and ask some questions and and look for some of your knowledge. And we have about three or four hundred people that listen to this podcast within twenty four hours of it being uh, posted. So I hope too many of them don't hit you up, but. Um,
1: Yeah, it's okay. I'll take the calls that I can, Um, you know, I may not get back to someone immediately, but I try, I try not to leave people hanging because, you know, that's, first of all, it's fun learning new stuff. It's fun. Like I said, it's rewarding to help grow. It's like, yes, you know. Um, So yeah, you know, but but yeah, you know, I have, I have things going on during the day too. So, but I can blab for a long time. Trust me. If you, (laughs) if you meet some of my customers, you'll know, they're like, wow, you know um, but it's because I like it, you know?
0: Exactly. You're passionate about it. And I can, I can definitely, definitely tell we're both very passionate about these things and we both truly love helping people. I'll, I'll, I'll talk for people on, on our, I'll miss meetings because I'm talking to a customer that grows three plants in their tent in their basement, but they want it to be the best three plants they can. I know your scale is a little bit larger than that, but, um, it's just the passion that we both have in those situations. So, right. You know, I hope everybody learned a lot today in this episode. Uh, we got about uh, an hour and 13 minutes of info for you guys to listen to. And uh, we're we're struggling through a little bit of internet latency throughout this process. But uh, obviously, it's some amazing information here. And our first chance to advertise about the Grassroots Soil Life Summit. And um, you're going to be one of the main speakers there um, on the first day. And day two is going to be pretty epic, too. We've got Steve Cantwell from Green Life Productions, an ex-UFC fighter turned cannabis grower, uh, speaking for an hour. He's done 30 uses in the same soil. Uh, we've got um, uh, Tad Hesse from Kiss Organics. We've got Ben Higgins uh, from their scientific team uh, that actually spent time at a grow for several years just analyzing things and doing everything they can to help the soil systems um, and a lot of other great people we have yet to announce too, that are going to be out there. So it's, it's going to be an epic time and, um, it's going to be cool. And we're also going to record it and anybody buys a ticket, you can watch it for like a whole another year afterwards. So, you know, it's, there's always too much that to take in on that day. So that's, where we're going to make it so everybody can record it and watch it later. So
1: I'm looking forward to it.
0: Well, it should be a great time, and um, I'm going to end the recording here, but you you hang on. Don't, don't go nowhere okay. yet, and uh, thank Sounds you so good. much, everybody. And, yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah, definitely. If you could say your email address and say how we can contact you one more time, I'd like to end the podcast with you saying your information.
1: Okay, so my name is Saul Alba. Um, that's S-A-U-L-A dot A-L-B-A at... Insectory.com. And Insectory is spelled insect, A-R-Y. So it's S-A-U-L A-L-B-A at Insectory.com.
0: Perfect, and I'll have that down in the the uh, podcast description. So if you got a computer mm-hmm. or an iPhone, copy and paste it, put it right into email, and and get a hold yeah. of this man and ask him your questions. And that'll be the best ways. Don't ask me; I don't I don't want to help you with this kind of stuff. That's why we bring these kind of people onto these podcasts, so you can go right to the experts and 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 not be getting secondhand knowledge passed down from somebody who just smoked a joint. So uh, get it get it directly from from the horse's mouth is what I like to say. Uh, So we'll end it there, and don't go anywhere, my friend. All right. Recording stopped.